You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. Man, it is so good to see you guys here this morning. So good to worship together uh, this morning. If you're new and you're joining us, maybe you know somebody who is getting baptized here this morning. We are, we're going to celebrate. We have six people getting baptized during this service alone. So that's something worth celebrating. Yeah, we're excited about that. But before we get to that, you got to listen to me for a little while. So that's how it goes. <laughs> uh, we're in week four of a series right now called Winning the War in Your Mind, which is all about the battles that every single one of us face in our mind. And today we're going to talk about something that I think is a very real lived experience for a lot of us. And it's this idea of panic being a part of so many of our lives. And so when I was eight years old, I was going on a camping trip with my Aunt Chris. We were going out to Holland State Park to go camping. And before we went camping, we had to stop at Target to pick up several different supplies. So we were picking up like dog food for her dog, Bailey. We were picking up uh, like those little LeChoy canned stir fry things that are kind of gross, but they work really well with camping, all of this different stuff. And before we left this Target, we had to go and use the bathroom. And so she goes in the women's room, and I'm walking, this young eight-year-old kid, into the men's room. And as I'm walking in, somebody else is walking out. And so they walk out, and I walk into the open door, and I grab the door to hold it open. But the problem is I grabbed the wrong side of the door. I grabbed the hinge side of the door, not the open side of the door. And as I grab the door... The door slowly closes on my hands, crushing my fingers. And I'll never forget this moment because as I pulled my hand away, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I wasn't paying attention or what was going on, but like the skin got ripped off my hands. It was a bloody mess. It looked like a scene out of The Shining. Like it was, it was brutal. It was rough. And uh, so the only thing I remember about that camping trip is how much in pain my fingers were the whole time. Of course, we went back into Target. We got bandages and, you know, fixed it up and everything like that, and it was all good. But I want to ask you a question. What color are Target's bathroom hallways every time you walk down them? They are red. And to this day... Every single time I walk down that hallway of bloody horror death, <laughs> my fingers start to tingle a little bit, right? I, I, my heart starts to race a little bit faster. My, I open that door very carefully. How is it that something that happened when I was 18 years old, every single time I walk down that stupid bloody hallway, I have a minor kind of panic Thing. Now, it's not like I can't go down there. I just freak out anytime I got a tingle when I'm in Target, okay? But how, yeah, I just said that. How is it that even to this day, I still have those little feelings of panic every single time I go down that hallway? It's because 
there is a little part of my brain, and every single one of us have these, called an amygdala. An amygdala that lights up like a Christmas tree every single time I walk down that hallway telling me, for some reason, I need to panic. As irrational as it may be, for some reason, I need to panic or have a minor panic response every single time I walk down those stupid red hallways. And every single one of us have this. Every single one of us has that kind of an emotionally charged part of our brain that panics. And let me ask you a question. When the logical part of your brain and the emotionally charged urgent part of your brain are at odds with each other, which one typically wins the day? It's the emotionally charged part, which is not a bad thing. Because if you're in a house fire, that's exactly the type of response you want to have. You want a brain function that says, get out of this house now. You don't want to sit there and reason with the fire, hoping she'll chill out. Or like if you're in a bear attack and you want to go pat little baby bear cubs and the mom's right there, you don't reason with the mom. You want to have your brain tell you to get out. It is a good thing that we have this kind of an emotionally charged, urgent response to different situations. It's hardwired into every single one of us. It is a good thing that we have this until it's not. Because here's the problem with our amygdalas. They are not very objective things. And so they don't always have the ability to differentiate between a real threat that is worthy of panic and a perceived threat where our body attacks itself and we experience panic because of something that's just perceived. And yet we live in a society right now that is telling us, above all else, to trust our emotional responses to things. To trust our emotions. And there's nothing wrong with emotions. God created emotions. Like, I, I consider myself a pretty emotional person. But Scripture doesn't ever tell us to trust our emotions. It also doesn't tell us to suppress our emotions either, which is another thing you'd hear. But it does tell us to probe our emotions, to question them, to say, body, mind, why are you reacting in this way to this situation? I love how the psalmist says this in Psalm 42. This is what he says about emotion. He, he asks himself, his mind, his soul, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Some translations say in distress. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation. Notice what he does. His soul is in panic mode, and he probes that. He questions that. You see, the movement in Scripture is that panic can turn into praise with legitimate hope in God. And yet, every single one of us, we have panic. We have threats that have caused us to panic. They may be a little irrational or they may be very real. Like maybe for you, like what causes panic responses in you? Like maybe for you, it's not being able to control your future, right? Like not knowing what's coming next and that causes these feelings of extreme anxiety that can lead to panic. Maybe for you, it's a bad grade or the scale saying that you've gained five pounds. Maybe it's someone giving you a funny look or a friend who takes their time and replying to your text. Like, anybody else get really annoyed by read receipts or, like, the little bubbles that never end in an actual text back? I should be talking. I'm the worst text backer of anybody. Everybody's like, amen. Uh, what causes panic for you? Your preteen texting with a member of the opposite sex? 
traffic on the way to work, a conversation with your mom revealing she's further into dementia than you thought, your best friend bailing on you, your boss walking through the office, the thought that you might fail. Like, I think every single one of us, we have these feelings of just, like, uneasiness when we enter into different life situations, some of which result and escalate up to a place of panic in our lives. And yet there's this beautiful thing that happens in the scriptures. Josh, our youth pastor, touched on this a couple weeks ago when he was preaching. He did such a good job when he was here teaching. And uh, he touched on these verses. And what I want to do today is I want to do a deeper dive into the verses that he ended with a couple weeks ago as we look at this reality of panic and anxiety and worry in our lives. And so if you have a Bible with you, the the main passage that we're going to be in for our time together today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that this is a guy named Paul who is writing this. He's a very real person. And as he's writing this, he is in chains to the gospel of Jesus. He's not in a place where his situation is all that great. He's in a place with many problems and many reasons to panic. And I want you to pay attention to what he says in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts, and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm going to keep it really real as if I don't normally. I struggle with these verses, if I can be honest. Anybody else? Like, I struggle with somebody saying, don't be anxious. Like, since when has somebody telling you to calm down actually ever helped you calm down? Right? Like, it doesn't exactly work. You see, I just keeping it really real here, like I've struggled with anxiety and panic attacks in my life. I've been on Zoloft and Buspar for four years to help mitigate these things. And so when I read these words, my immediate thought is, that's great. This is a guy who's never struggled with anxiety in his life. This is a guy who's never struggled with feelings of panic in his life. You see, I, I take medication not because I can't walk down a red target hallway, but because I have very real issues of anxiety, more so than I'd like to admit. Maybe you do too. Be anxious about nothing, pray about everything. I don't think we buy it if we're honest. You want to know why I don't think we buy it? Because Panic is the soundtrack of our lives. Anxiety is the baseline of our society. Like if I were to count the number of conversations I have in the church surrounding people's feelings of anxiety and then also the power of prayer in people's lives, like the peace that comes through prayer, the number of conversations about anxiety far outweigh the number of conversations about the power of of prayer because this has become such a soundtrack in our lives. At best, these verses sound like religious well-wishing from a guy who doesn't know the trembling, gasping, numbing, excruciating pain of a panic attack, of having your body attack you in panic. It's not that simple. Why is he making it sound like a formula? Like, my anxiety feels like anything 
but an easy formula to fix. Maybe you've been there too. Every time I read this passage, I always start in verse 6. It always starts with human need and problem. In fact, if you can go back to that verse, Marcus, go back to the previous one, oftentimes when we read these verses, that is the place we start. Do not be anxious. Just calm down. Don't be anxious about anything. Every single time, though, that I start with my problem, like every single time my eyes are fixed on my problem, I always begin by looking for a situational solution to that problem. Like, my anxiety will be better when my situation changes. Like, if I can just move to a place with more sun, I'll have less seasonal anxiety. Anybody ever thought that before? Yeah. If I can just have more money, I'll have less panic about money. If I can just find the right person, I'll have less panic about relationships. What we tend to do is we start with this place of anxiousness. We start with this place of anxiety. We start with our eyes on the problem. Like, if they'll just paint those dang target hallways beige, I'll be good for the rest of my life. But I want to remind you, and maybe tell you for the first time, Paul doesn't start with simply saying, do not be anxious about anything. This isn't the starting place of this thought for Paul. Because before he ever says, do not be anxious about anything, you know what the very statement is that comes before that in the verse before? You know what the very thing he says, the the very thing he says before he says, do not be anxious, is this simple promise. The Lord is near. Paul doesn't begin with the problem. He begins with a promise. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is near. Bring everything to him. The Lord is not distant. The Lord is near. You see, the deep conviction of this book is not that peace comes when our problems change or when our problems are removed. The deep conviction of this book is that peace comes when the presence of Christ invades those problems. That's peace. I've said this before, but but when God offers us peace, he doesn't just kind of sprinkle peace on like fairy dust from a distance. No, every single time God offers peace, he offers it through his nearness, through his presence. That's peace. And so you'll read story after story of real people navigating real anxiety, real problems, real areas of panic in their lives. And God's solution to that every single time is by offering himself closer than you know, nearer than you think. See, when it really comes down to it, at least for me, the deep fear underlying panic and anxiety is the absence of God, the not nearness of God, the distance of God. And so what I end up doing in those moments is my prayers are robbed of their power because I believe the lie that God is far and that I am alone. And yet, friends, the promise is from a God who never leaves us, who never forsakes us, who is always near, who is always at hand. You see, the lie that drives so much panic in our lives is the lie that I am forgotten, that God has forgotten me, that I am abandoned, that God has abandoned me. That whether near or far, God doesn't seem to care that my future is not secure. That there's something, that he's something less than who he promised to be. 
And that when it really comes down to it, I am here all on my own. All anxiety, all panic, all worry comes down to the fundamental question, who do you trust most? Your emotions or God's promises? See, I've, I've heard this same thing said a lot by people in the church who are walking through a, a really difficult season, and I've said this too. I've said, you know, I know, like I know up here in my head that God is near. I know up here that he promises never to leave me. I know all of this up here, but I'm having a really hard time feeling it right here. What's the problem with that response to God's presence? That once again, it goes back to just trusting our feelings more than anything else. Trusting the, the way that we feel as our main measure of how close he is and how much he's listening and how much he cares. If I don't feel it, it must not be true. See, we need the emotional parts of our brain to validate the logical parts of our brain. It's not enough just to know it up here. We have to know it down here as well. There's a, there's a psychologist that offers a really interesting illustration to show how these two parts of our brain really work together. And this is fascinating to me. So imagine this little man riding on top of this massive elephant, if you will, for just a moment. Okay? And so the, the rider and the elephant, for the most part, are on the same page. The rider, he is the logical part. He knows the path. He knows the journey. He, uh, he, he has the map. He knows where they're going. And for the most part, he steers the elephant. The elephant provides the power for the journey. But he's the emotional one. He's the amygdala, right? He's the one driven by instinct. Like if he wants to eat, he's going to eat. If he wants to do something different than what the rider wants to do, he's going to do something different than the rider, what the rider wants to do. And what the psychologist does is he compares the elephant to our emotions and he compares the rider to our logic. Now let me ask you the question. If the rider and the elephant, the 140-pound rider and the four-ton elephant disagree with each other, who's going to win that argument? Not a trick question. Who's going to win that argument? The elephant Every single time, unless he's trained. And the same exact thing is true with what happens in our minds, that for so many of us, we need to actually learn how to train our minds to appeal to the nearness of God in the midst of our deepest seasons of anxiety and panic. Now, let me give you a caveat before we jump back into the text. I have heard so many pastors over the years say something along the lines of, well, you're dealing with anxiety and you're dealing with panic. You're just not praying enough. You will never hear those words come out of my mouth. That if somebody is navigating a cancer diagnosis, there is a physical element to that where you are seeking treatment, but there's also a spiritual element to a cancer diagnosis. The same exact thing is true with the mental battles that we face. There is a physical side of things. That's why I said I don't share it just to overshare that I'm on medication, but I believe in seeing doctors and medication. But I also believe there is a spiritual component of this, and both matter. Both are important. Okay, fair enough. Does everyone know where we stand on that? Okay. So what I want to do as we continue on here is I want to go back into Philippians 4, verses 4, and I want to give you a roadmap for the spiritual side of things when it comes to our panic and our anxiety that Paul actually lays out in this passage. There's three movements in this passage that I think if we put into practice in our lives, we can actually appeal to how near God actually is. We can experience his nearness even when our emotions are telling us he is distant. 
Okay, so let me just read this again. Verse 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, leaving that, that verse up there, those verses up there, I want to just highlight the three main movements in these verses. The first one is a movement of praise. Okay, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. The first one is a movement of praise. And we're going to unpack that in a minute here. The second one is a movement of prayer. Three Ps. I, I did the alliteration. I worked hard for you guys this week, okay? So the, the second one is the movement of prayer. So you got praise and you got prayer. Who can guess what the third P is in there? Peace. Good job. Shocker, right? So prayer, our praise, prayer, and peace are the three movements that Paul walks us through to appeal to how near God is in the seasons when our emotions are lying to us and we're, we're convincing ourselves that he's actually distant. So the first one here, praise. Praise. This guy Paul writes about praise and actually lives out praise as he's being stripped, beaten, flogged, crushed to the ground, imprisoned, tortured, guarded. And what does he do when he finds himself in the prison cell? All you need to do is look at Acts 16, him and Silas rejoice. They praise. They experience joy in the midst of the panic. And I just tell you, that if you want to stick it to a world that trusts, that says trust your emotions above all else, praise God in the midst of your panic. That gets people thinking we're really weird. Okay? Praise God in the midst of your panic. And when I say praise, what I'm not saying is kind of put on this happy face, put on this smile, and just pretend all of your problems don't exist. Like, I've spoken to grieving people in our church, and, and what I've said to them before is like, in the midst of losing your spouse, in the midst of the diagnosis, joy for you may not look like this massive smile on your face and hands in the air and pretending like your problems don't exist. Joy for you may simply just mean enjoying the presence of God because he is close. Just sitting in that, resting in that. For, for many of us, that is praise. And for some of us, that's all we can muster in different seasons of our lives. But that is something. Paul Paul is able to praise in the midst of being crushed and pressed down. And while you likely have never been beat in a prison cell with rods and flogged with glass shards, chances are you have been stripped of your confidence, your faith, your dignity, and beaten with doubts and anxiety and self-loathing. Perhaps you can relate to Paul and Silas a little. Have you, have you been there hitting the ground when you found out someone you love had cancer or that your kid was addicted to drugs? or that your spouse was cheating on you? Like in those crushing moments, is your response praise? Here's what I want to encourage you with. That we praise a who, not a what. And what I mean when I say that is we praise a God. We don't praise a circumstance. 
that when the Bible tells us to give thanksgiving, to give thanks in all circumstances, it is not telling us to give thanks for all circumstances. It is telling us to give thanks to God in all circumstances. And for some of us, the only thing that we can muster in those moments is, God, thank you for how near you are. I can't see it. I can't hear it. I can't feel it right now. But I know it's true because you've promised it's true. In my seasons of just constant panic attack and and darkest seasons in my life where I have just wrestled through some of this stuff, I will tell you this, that praise in some of those seasons has been the only thing that has carried me. I remember one time leaving a counselor's office during one of my darkest seasons and uh, not able to hear the voice of God, not being able to sense his presence, like not being able to feel any of that. And I remember in that specific session, this counselor told me, he said, Brad, you are carrying so many bags right now that are weighing you down. You have, you have bags of crippling anxiety, worry about the future, worry about the past. Like you are carrying so many bags right now. And the invitation of Jesus is one at a time, will you set that bag down and will you let me carry it for you? You let me carry it for you. I know transferring all of your baggage, all of your anxiety, all of your panic, all of your worry to Jesus is not a realistic first step, but will you set one down and let me carry that for you? And it was on that ride home where I played what has become one of my favorite worship songs. It's the song Pieces by Bethel Music. And these are just some of the lyrics that came on as I rode home that day. Uh, just tears streaming down my face. This is what it says. God, you're giving us new memories where shame wrote our stories. You're giving us new memories where shame wrote our stories, not just new perspective, but innocence restored. That, God, you don't give your heart in pieces. Your love's not fractured. It's not a troubled mind. It isn't anxious. It's not the restless kind. Your love's not passive. It's never disengaged. It's always present. It hangs on every word we say. Your love keeps its promises. It keeps its word. It honors what is sacred because its vows are good. Your love's not broken. It's not insecure. Your love's not selfish. Your love is pure because, God, you don't give your heart in pieces. Friends, praise can carry you in the midst of some season your life's darkest seasons. The second appeal Paul makes here is one of prayer. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. That God desires to pick up those bags for us one at a time and carry the burdens that we were never designed to carry. His joy is to carry those on our behalf. Not simply because it makes our lives easier, but because it shows us his glory and his strength and his power in our lives. I love how Peter says this in in these verses here in, in 1 Peter 5. This is what he says. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. His back can take what yours cannot. Amen? 
Like if you think about the guy, go back to that verse there for a second, Marcus. If you think about the guy who wrote these words, it's a guy named Peter who once upon a time got out of a boat to go walk on the water towards his Savior Jesus. And right in the midst of his eyes on Jesus, what did he do? He took his eyes off of Jesus and put them on every single area of worry and panic in his lives. The storm surrounded him and he began to sink. He took his eyes off the nearness of Jesus and put them on to the presence of problems. The same thing that I've done, the same thing that so many of us do. And what did Jesus do? He reached out his mighty hand and pulled Peter up. And so when Peter writes these words, he is writing them from a place of very real lived experience. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. He knows what it's like when the rubber hits the road for these words. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. See, if you're starting to experience runaway emotions, negative thoughts, pray. Like, if you're worried about your upcoming doctor's appointment, pray. If you don't know what decision to make, pray. If you're concerned about how your kid is doing in school, pray. If you feel like you are never going to find someone you want to marry, pray. If you feel like you're never enough in any given situation, pray. I know that's the pastor thing to say. But I believe in the power of bringing our anxiety to God, just like we would want to talk about any other thing in a counseling relationship or with a friend. God is the same exact way, except he is far more powerful to carry those than anybody else. Pray. And then the third one here. The third one is peace. That if it's on your mind, then it's on God's heart. The nearness of God, the fact that his affection and his attention is turned towards you in any given moment is not just a nice kind of thing to feel. It's not just a sentimental feeling. It is a promise that he has made, and that reality is where peace is experienced. Peace is experienced in the presence of God. Not the absence of problems, but his very real lived presence with us. I want to illustrate this for you this way. This uh, coming Thursday, I'm actually really excited about this. This coming Thursday, my wife and I are celebrating our 10-year anniversary, which we're really, yeah, we're excited about it. We made it. Um, (laughs) And uh, I was talking to my wife the other day, and um, I said, you know, I'd be doing pretty good as a husband if I thought about you every 12 seconds, 24-7 around the clock. She's like, you mean you don't? I said, Sam, like, I'd never be able to get sleep if I did that, okay? Like, you want me up all night? Whatever. So I'd be doing pretty good, right, if I was singing about my wife every 12 seconds, around the clock, 24-7, every single day for 10 years straight. I'd be doing pretty good as a husband. And if every single one of those times I thought about my wife was represented by a single grain of sand laid out on the ground, how much space would that sand take up over those 10 years? How much space would those grains of sand take up if they were laid out on the ground for representing every thought I have about my wife? The answer is two and a half square feet. Two and a half square feet. 
And yet in Psalm 139, I want you to look at what God describes his thoughts. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Do you see it? Like God's heart is postured towards you. That in your moments of greatest doubt, greatest anxiety, greatest uncertainty, God is moving in, that he is moving closer. That when Elijah was experiencing this in 1 Kings 19, he literally wanted to die. He's on a mountain with God alone. He says, just God, kill me now. I, I have no desire to live. God doesn't show up in the rushing whirlwind. He doesn't show up in this massive earthquake. He doesn't show up in the fire. How does God show up to Elijah? In a whisper. How close do you have to be to someone to hear a whisper? Really, really close. And so my hope this morning is that if you're in a season of just crippling anxiety, crippling panic, and you do not know what to do, number one, I want to encourage you to go make an appointment with a doctor because that is one of the hardest first steps to take, and it can change your life. It has changed mine to make an appointment with a therapist. We have plenty of great resources here that we can help you with in that. But then to begin putting these things into practice, to experience the nearness and the closeness of God in the midst of the panic. And my promise to you is that in, when doing those things, he can lift us up out of the pit because he's done it for me, and I know he can do it for you. And so as we close today, I just want to give you something really practical to put this into practice and if you're following along in like the printed devotional or the e-journal that we have, uh, this is actually going to be in there as well. So uh, this is a really cool kind of thing that we can practice, and then we're going to move into baptisms after this. And so as the band comes back up, I, I just want to challenge you to do this this week, to take a shoebox at home and to write the word God on it. Just take an empty shoebox or cardboard box. If you don't have any empty shoeboxes laying around, you can borrow one of mine. i got plenty of them laying around. <laughs> Just kidding, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> borrow one of mine, and uh, here's the thing. Just write God on it. And every single time that you walk through this week and you experience some level of panic or worry, have a slip of paper and just write it on there. Write what it is, just a sentence, a word, just something really short on that slip of paper. You can even do it as a note in your phone. Okay, so every single time I worry about, you know, the, this meeting that I have coming up, I'm, I'm just going to write it down. I worry about, you know, money, I'm going to write that down. I worry about relationships, I'm just going to write it down, write it down, write it down every single time. And then what I want to encourage you to do is at the end of every day, take all of those slips of paper, or if it's a note on your phone, write them down physically. And one by one, surrender them to God by placing them in this box. Just one by one, God, I'm, I'm giving this to you. I'm giving this to you. I'm giving this to you. Now, I believe that in and of itself, that, that physical act of surrender has the power to change some things for us. But, but there's something even more powerful that I want us to do. Here's the kicker, and this is, I think, where the real transformation can happen with this exercise. If you decide that something that you've placed in the box is something worth your worry and your panic and attention once again. 
Like if you find yourself placing something in the box and then the next day worrying and, you know, uh, like Josh said, ruminating on that over and over and over again the next day, if that is something that you find yourself doing, what you need to do is you need to go back to that box and you need to say, God, I don't actually believe you're strong enough to carry this. And so I'm not going to trust you with this. I'm taking this back. Friends, there is something powerful when we give something to God and then we have to physically go and say, no, I am taking this back because I believe that I'm better at managing this than you are. Let's try that this week. Let's see what God does in the midst of our areas of greatest uncertainty, greatest panic, and greatest worry. And guys, let's see how God transforms some of those areas in our lives. This is not a one and done thing. This is a disciplined process in our lives, and God really promises that he will move in the midst of this. Let me, uh, let me offer a prayer for us, and then we're going to respond in worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of peace. You are the Prince of Peace, that in your presence, Storms can surround us. Storms can engulf us. Your promise is that you don't bail in those moments. That you are closer than we know. That God, I pray we will be the type of people who trust your promises more than we trust our emotion. That you are the God who listens. You are the God who cares. You are the God who suffers alongside. You are the God who bears the load of the wars raging in our mind. What a picture of love. These wars of our own causing, of our own choosing, of the, of the sin nature that engulfs all of us, God. You step into that and you offer a path to peace. What a God you are. You are near. That God, for those in this room right now, for those watching online who don't feel your nearness, who don't feel your closeness, who, who maybe can't even get out a word of praise right now in this season, God, I pray that the people around them right now in this room will lift praise on their behalf, will help carry that load, will help shoulder that burden. God, you didn't design us for panic. You designed us for peace in your presence. God, we pray that that will be our lived reality every single day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.